0: welcome to best of shows entertainment weekly's weekly look at the best of television and the rest of television i'm darren franich tv critic for entertainment weekly joined by my brilliant colleague tv critic kristen baldwin how's it going kristen
1: Uh, i think i left part of my face over on madison avenue on my way over here it's very cold
0: Oh, it's no. very cold,
1: but it's good. Um,
0: oh, I was going to complain about the clouds out here in Los Angeles, <laughs> but I won't now. Uh, no, I no, won't. please don't. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it, it's a cloudy winter's day here in Los Angeles, winter. if anyone was wondering.
1: <laughs> like you have winter. Darren, I have a question for you. How are you feeling about the most recent masked singer uh, unmasking?
0: Oh, I have a confession to make. I didn't watch this week's Masked Singer. Can what, I, happened? Can I what happened? Your, can I
1: blow your mind? The, Please do. Please uni- do. The unicorn was unmasked. Paris Hilton? Tory spelling. No! Oh no! Of course it was Tory of spelling. Of course it oh, was! How could I have possibly thought it was Paris Hilton? But see,
0: that was the that was the red herring. That was yes. the red herring that they were leaning into so much. I oh, mean man. Tory
1: spelling is also Hollywood royalty, as That's uh, true. as we uh, no, from the hints. You know what? I just hope they made it worth poor Tori Spelling's while. I know that she's had some financial difficulties. Uh, and, you know, I hope that uh, she got a big old payday for her oh. role on The mass Singer. And now, also, by the way, somebody should uh, cast her in something because I enjoy her. She's actually quite funny. And uh, remember that reality show she did that was like kind of her life? It was sort of like a quasi-reality show. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was her and her husband and their uh, ten children, right? Well, there's the, there are those shows. But then she did a show um, that was scripted that was kind of like sort of a... T- it was sort of her Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm trying to remember what it was called. And it was... Uh, I think it aired on Bravo or E! And it was really silly, but uh, I enjoyed it. And it was quite funny. And I would uh, like her to get another another... Some kind of role that isn't, you know mom of six and wife to questionable husband.
0: You know what I want to see her in? I think I want to see her in the next season of Fargo. I know (gasps) I say this, I feel like I say this for a lot of performers who don't usually do drama that I want to see them in Fargo which is like one of the most entertaining dramas on right now. But I feel like she'd fit into that world somehow. I mean, her accent could be on the scale of broadness that a lot of other actors' accents have been on the show. (laughs) Sorry, the show was
1: called I Looked It Up So Notorious, and it was basically you know her playing a version of herself. Um, it aired on VH1 in t- 2006 and it was quite funny. And it also featured uh an actor named Zachary Quinto. What I know pre pre Siler, pre Spock, Zachary Quinto. Yeah, he, play? uh, he played her friend and oh, interesting. Um, Lonnie Anderson. Like, I mean, for realsies, it was it was a this was a the show itself was a creature of interest.
0: Anyway. If we've had had like 15 seasons of Creeper Enthusiasm, I think we could have one more season of So Notorious. Shouldn't Um, we? Kristen, now that I've said that ridiculous statement, let me ask you something might be a little personal. Okay. Uh, how did you feel about middle school, about, about junior high, about seventh grade specifically? What was the Kristen Baldwin experience of seventh grade like?
1: You know, I don't think I minded seventh grade so much. Uh, I definitely, I moved uh, from Minnesota to Massachusetts in fifth grade. And so that was an uncomfortable year. But then by seventh grade, I had kind of settled into my new home. And, um, but generally, I was awkward and miserable, as most uh, young girls that age are.
0: Uh, Yes, awkward and miserable is what I'm going to focus on that statement, because that's also, that's my main memory of seventh grade. Uh, In like the social stratosphere Mm -hmm. of my school, I was like one minor rung above the kid who was made fun of by everybody and yes. Kristen I have to say there's no one more desperate than the kid who is right above that kid yes like because I I simultaneously was friends with him but then also would have to consistently stab him in the back when everyone else was around yeah I wasn't a good person no nope. I would say I would say it was very situational it wasn't a good time Kristen I think that the first show we're gonna talk about is made for people like us and really made for everybody I would say I'm talking about pen 15 which debuts on Hulu uh, its entire first season on February 8th. The show is created by Maya Erskine, Anna Conkle, and Sam Sweebelman And uh, Erskine and Conkle, who are, uh, in fact, adults in their 20s and 30s, uh, essentially play versions of themselves when they were in 7th grade. Uh, they are playing 7th graders. Everyone else around them is kind of actual kid actors playing 7th <laughs> graders, which sounds weird, but it actually makes the show... It gives it a, 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 an unexpected sweetness, is how I would describe it, um, Both the main actresses are really really great at playing uh, Seventh graders in a way that doesn't really feel that exaggerated We kind of meet uh, Maya and Anna their characters on the first day of school. It's August 28th 2000 internet is not fully enmeshed in everyone's (laughs) life yet There's a joke about the kind of AOL dial-up, but we are still very much in an analog preteen world Uh, They're beginning seventh grade. They got a lot of hopes and dreams and optimistic feelings about it Uh, In the first episode, things go very badly, very quickly. (laughs) There is a hilarious uh, bit about a bull haircut, which I have to say is the haircut that I had for most of middle school. So it it immediately resonated with me. Um, But there's also just a real kind of wonderful and almost surreal sensitivity to the show. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the first episode is kind of set all largely on this first day of school, and you're kind of following Anna and Maya on this sort of roller coaster. Of teen emotions, um, episodes after that have a really unique flow. There's kind of one that's just about you know this awkward phase where suddenly you go from being someone who plays with your Barbies and your action figures to being someone who might go to a party on a weekend. Like the show yeah. is very much about that incredible changeover into the teen years. Um, so I, I've seen five episodes and I have to say I really really loved uh, what I saw. Uh, how, uh, how, how how do you feel about Pen Fifteen?
1: You know what? I I love how. Well well, it captures the sort of intense emotional highs and lows of seventh grade, that era in your life, the intense cruelty of kids this age, but also like the intense uh, power of female friendship. You know, it, it, the bond between best friends and the bond between Maya and Anna is really so uh, powerful and you know, when you're that age, having a best friend that you do everything with, you know, can almost be like a suit of armor, you know, against the indignities uh, of life in seventh grade. And it also makes it really emotional when you start developing new interests and developing things that you don't necessarily want to talk to your best friend about. You know, there's a episode number three is a episode where one of them discovers masturbation. <laughs> and like it is, you know, she, she feels very uh You know, she's so obsessed with it, but she's also feeling guilty about it. But it has a really uh, kind of lovely ending uh, to the episode. I was a little squirmy during it because I'm a bit of a Puritan, but uh, I really (laughs) did love the way it wrapped up. And it just sort of underscored that, like, you know, being a a young girl turning into a young woman, that, you know, sexuality is going to be a part of that. And it doesn't make you you know, gross as, as the girls fear. Um, And I just, I thought it was really funny. It's funny that, you know, they are older actresses playing kids, but, honestly, they both look so young that it kind of, it, I didn't even blink an eye. And I think as t- long time TV viewers, Darren, we're also used to older actors playing kids on TV. <laughs> so it, the ones who were actual kids, I was like, wow, they look really young. No, it uh, is is—it
0: it, is—it it is striking because, uh, you know, Erskine and Conkle both, the, obviously, they're playing seventh graders. Like, they look more like seventh graders on this show than, I mean, I don't know, I was just recently rewatching some early episodes of The O.C., which I love. <laughs> But, like, on the OC, I mean, all, all of the dude high schoolers on that show look like they could be in their late 20s. I mean, it is, it's is—it's interesting. This show is almost kind of leaning in a very different direction. I think yeah. part of that is down to the performances. Um, You know, Erskine uh, as Maya, I, I would say she's maybe, I don't want to say, like, the wilder of the two, but she's definitely the one who is kind of constantly seeming to really, like, push them into this new kind of adult realm. Mm-hmm. She kind of really wants to go to a party. She's the one who kind of is discovering masturbation, um, and there's just a real kind of awesome mixture of almost nerdly strength in her performance. Yes. Um, whereas Konkel, her performance, it, it's just, it's really kind of wonderful how she's constantly reacting to Maya. There's something about uh, their friendship that's very physical in a way. You, you mm-hmm. really do feel you were kind of describing it as, as like this shared suit of armor they have, and you really feel that they are this unit together, which it adds to another interesting thing the episodes we've seen so so far, which is that I feel like you're very aware on this show that they're also kind of at that age where people who've been best friends forever might start to not be best friends anymore. And it adds this interesting tension in these episodes where they're both kind of moving in specific directions into their teen years. You know, Anna is going through stuff at home and her parents seem to be on the road to, if not divorce, then years and years of unhappiness. And that's kind of this hard, unspoken thing. Um, But I have to say too, you know, you were mentioning some of the other young actors. They've done such a good job of finding like it's kind of the opposite of Disney kid actors. They're all very deadpan. There's a running gag. They look like kids. There's this running gag about like the boys they like. And the boys just they all look like toddlers practically. No, they're (laughs) so little. They're like toddlers with with, with great hair. Such good hair.
1: (laughs) And it's funny because they go to a party and there's you know five of the brothers in, you know, there's some family that's like so. Super hot, And even the eight-year-old, literally the eight-year-old, poor Anna gets stuck going into the closet. You know, it's like a make-out party and they all hook up. And poor Anna gets stuck in the closet with the eight-year-old. And of course, nothing sexual happens. They have like a nice conversation. But like, there's just this running gag of like, yeah, but he's eight. I know, but he's really hot. I know, but he's really hot.
0: It's so great. They're in the closet and and the eight-year-old, who again, on the show, looks like he could be six, is like, so do you like Crash Bandicoot? It's just, there's a real... (laughs) And what I like to there's almost a kind of I would describe it as like late 90s MTV weirdness to it where like it is very strange and but it just it has that kind of added human dimension Um, And of course, you know Kristen is in fact a period piece. We sort of mentioned it begins in August 2000 Um, Mm -hmm. And to me it does the right kind of period piece work where it gets a lot of the world Right, you know, there's like JTT posters in the background. There's gel pens. There's like cargo everything—it's cargo pants, cargo shorts, cargo skirts—you know, yeah. way too, way, way more pockets than anyone could ever use. But, <laughs> but it doesn't seem like it's just having those references as an easy laugh. There's one episode that's essentially all about them finding a thong, um, which you know, on, on another show seems like that would be the time for for a Cisco cameo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and instead, what what happens is almost a morality play about their relationship with this thong, and you know how it changes their. Perspective on themselves and I just I, I like how it, it seems like it's going to that extra layer beyond the kind of that 70s show look I remember that stuff uh, right you know you know um, um, uh, enjoyment uh, but it, it, it is getting all that stuff very accurate too, yeah which, I think which I think is interesting
1: there is a there is a danger with period shows where It's just becomes more about like, hey, look at the giant phone and hey, look at the, you know, (laughs) look at her feathered hair or whatever. But this, you know, has a nice, uh, you know, it's very complete, as you say, but it's not it doesn't lean too much on that. And I also just want to give a a shout out to the actor who plays Maya's dad, Richard Karn from Home Improvement is her dad and he's in a professional Steely Dan cover band, which is. (laughs)
0: Amazing. <laughs> his appearance was so incredible. And, and, and his role in the show is, I mean, really kind of wonderful too. Yeah. But it, 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 there is that kind of resonance there of like, oh my God, like, what are you, like, Al, Al it's Borland, Al. where have you been? And, and why haven't you been doing this Steely Dan cover band for so much longer?
1: <laughs> but it's just, yeah, it's a really interesting uh, show. And uh, I, I look forward to seeing more. It's funny, but it's there's some moments that are really funny and then but it's also very sweet like it it has the the right balance of humor and emotion.
0: Absolutely. Everybody check it out uh, the first season streams on Hulu on February 8th. Good for you, Hulu. Hulu yeah. you've, been, you've been needing a win and I'm always kind of rooting for you and this this feels like a uh, real win to me. It feels like something that is you know a, a comedy that's you know you know going in a lot of really wonderful directions.
1: And uh, I love a female led comedy, uh, which actually leads us to our next show. Uh, A few years ago, Netflix decided to get into the traditional multi-cam sitcom business, and their best entry in this category so far is One Day at a Time. And this is the rare reboot with a real reason for being. Uh, Norman Lear has updated his comedy, which ran originally from 1975 to 1984, and he's given, he's built it around a Latino family headed by a single mom and war veteran Penelope, who's played by the great Justina Machado, and she lives with her two kids and her very loving but opinionated mom, Lydia, who is played by the legendary Rita Moreno. Legendary. Legend. And what I like about this show, uh, which returns for its third season on February 8th on Netflix, is that it's just a really sweet, traditional family comedy, but because it's Norman Lear, it has a very progressive bent. Uh, Penelope's daughter, Elena, is a lesbian. The stories tackle everything from religion to voting and voting apathy, depression, and it's just, you know, it's a, Really great ensemble, mostly female ensemble. And the premiere had some great casting as well. Gloria Estefan, who sings the theme song, by the way, shows up as Lydia's sister, Mirtha, and they've been in a feud for years over a (laughs) wedding veil, a mantilla. And then uh, two Brooklyn Nine-Nine cameos, which I love. Melissa Fumero uh, plays Penelope's cousin, and Stephanie Beatrice plays Elena's gay cousin. And uh, it's just, it's a really sweet show. It's not always like laugh out loud funny, but there are you know good funny moments in it. It's a nice like palate cleanser if you've been watching something dark and d- disturbing which more than likely you have because most TV right now is dark and disturbing. Also the world. <laughs> yeah, true. True. The it's, world. It's a nice palate cleanser from the universe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I really and it's not one where I feel like obviously it's nice if you start from the beginning but you know I haven't kept up with it every season but I picked up season three and watched a few episodes and you know totally was able to pick up the story and all the characters are fully formed and I it's just a really nice sweet family comedy um, are you somebody who's watched it all along Darren uh, you know
0: i I haven't Kristen unfortunately and it was definitely kind of great just diving into uh, the third season um, you kind of mentioned that first uh, the first episode which I kind of just headlined the Kristen Baldwin episode, given the Brooklyn (laughs) Nine-Nine. Like, come on, casting two Brooklyn Uh, Nine-Nine cast members is an easy way to your heart. It really won me over. Still waiting for the cameos from the cast of John from Cincinnati for me, by the way, one day at a time. But I'll I'll give you a moment there. But Kristen, you know, you kind of mentioned the palate cleanser aspect of this show, and to me for a long time I've kind of felt like, if I have a big problem with television, he said from the mountaintop, uh, (laughs) it's that I kind of feel like TV has lost its chill. Sometimes, yes. like, you know, w- whether it's a drama or a comedy We have these shows that move very fast that are very bleak that I would say are trying too hard And I mean this even about some shows that I like a lot mm-hmm. um, and there's something about one day at a time that you know You want to say it's old-fashioned in the sense that it's a multicam and it you know It is very much tackling these issues in a way that we do kind of tend to classify as the Norman Lear style as the 70s style But more than anything it just feels like it, it is t- Tangibly giving these characters room to breathe with mm-hmm. these issues. Um, the second episode of season three is, I mean, it's a lot of things, but you could essentially call it the Me Too episode, which is a type of episode that we've had a lot of lately on, on in all aspects of television. Um, and, you know, it kind of begins with, uh, uh, you know, the mom discovers that her son is doing some questionable stuff on Instagram. This leads to a huge conversation about consent and toxic masculinity and all this stuff. But it's literally a conversation I mean, yeah. uh, like roughly half of the episode, um, there's a 13 minute scene that is just them in their room, kind of sitting on their couch, you know, talking about this and having fun with it and finding ways to make jokes out of it and really getting into these interesting emotional spaces with the characters. And I just thought that, you know, that to me is bringing back um, the kind of quality of true theater that I think multicam sitcoms <laughs> yes. used to have. And, and I, Norman I, I Lear
1: sitcoms especially.
0: Exactly, yeah. And, and, you know, that's just something that I think even multicamera sitcoms kind of tended to lose in the 90s when you got to, you know, great shows like Seinfeld that were just much faster and, mm-hmm. and, and much quippier. Um, so that's really, for me, that's the big discovery and just more than anything, this cast is really, really wonderful. Uh, you know, Justina Machado is just great as, to me, like one of the best sitcom kinds of people who you can just tell like she's dealing with a hundred <laughs> things at once in every episode yes. and feels like she's failing. She feels like um, a, a real Sibling character to someone like Pamela Adlon on oh, Better yes, Things, yeah. um, and I just, I, I just, I'm I'm really glad there's a family sitcom like this. It it, it it it's definitely a show that loves its buzzwords, and sometimes that can make it seem. I mean, it's again, it's a show that's about topics with a capital T, right? Um, but I I I think it does that in a way that's just so really effective and and always very you know based on the characters, not just them kind of blathering about you know trending topics or anything.
1: Yeah, and they do actually sort of. Uh, you know, they are very self-aware about it. Like there's one episode this season where Elena and her girlfriend are going, you know, they rent a hotel room, they're going to have sex for the first time. And they, you know, they sort of make a... A uh, self-deprecating uh, statement in the beginning. They're like, "Okay, well, we walk the walk. We have to talk the talk. Do you consent to having <laughs> sexual relations with me?" You know, like, and it's you know, they're pointing, they're kind of poking fun a little bit at at that that very hyper uh, sensitive, you know, millennial culture of uh, informed consent and everything. But it's still, you know, it's a good thing, you know, to show these kids acting out, and it's and it's done in a way that is funny. Um, and I just like, you know, it's not. Not like the other netflix single camera comedies like fuller house or the ranch where they practically you know beat you to death with the laugh track i know a lot of people cannot deal with a laugh track my son started watching fuller house for a little while and he literally would yell at the screen stop laughing <laughs> like it was so loud and obnoxious that even my child you know who is is like, literally ADD and all of that, like, couldn't take it. Um, but One Day at a Time is, you know, it has a laugh track, but it's not, you know, oppressive. And it's not something like The Ranch, which, you know, for whatever reason, feels the need to have a laugh track and swearing, which is just like, what is happening? So I just think it's a really nice, you know, I would call it a throwback, but a very sort of... Uh, It's one that has it's a there's a reason they rebooted this format, this premise for uh, for a new audience. And I think it works really well. And it's something that, you know, when you're feeling a little depressed and maybe you've watched all of the British bake show on Netflix, you know, turn on one day at a time. It, It premieres February 8th. On Netflix,
0: can I just say, uh, Kid Critic Fred and his thoughts <laughs> and his thoughts about Fuller House? Oh my God! I I, I, I fully support that, and I, I'm not sure if you saw this, Kristen. Literally, as we're recording this, Netflix has just announced that Fuller House is going to end next season with, with its fifth and final season. All so, right so good, good for you, Kid Critic Fred. Yeah. <laughs> your your voice has been has been heard. <laughs> Too much laughing. Stop laughing. Stop
1: laughing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: yeah, uh, maybe this means that One Day at a Time can uh, move up. You know, it has a lot of critical acclaim and people love it. But there, there have been some worries before, like, oh, or, is Netflix going to renew it? So I hope that with the ending of Fuller House, they will let One Day at a Time uh, run for many years to come.
0: Here's hoping. I mean, also they literally can do a whole episode just on the one set, and that episode can be fabulous. So I'm guessing it's not costing them too much. Exactly. This this show, which again is wonderful, it looks like it costs like one one hundredth of an altered carbon. Like I I think we can, (laughs) I think we can keep it around for a
1: little while longer. Netflix. (laughs) <laughs> so now it's time for our TV talk segment where Darren and I tackle some of the week's most noteworthy TV news. So tonight, CBS will air the 58th episode of its legal drama, Bull, which stars Michael Weatherly as Dr. Jason Bull, a charismatic psychologist and, quote, trial science expert. His character was inspired by Dr. Phil McGraw, who ran a trial consulting company before he became daytime TV's Dr. Phil. Um, So for the first two seasons of its run, Bull was a big hit for CBS. It averaged around 14 million viewers a week. And this season, the numbers have been down significantly. The last episode got about 6.69 million, still big enough numbers that uh, its future didn't seem to be in jeopardy. But then that changed on December 13th, when the New York Times published an article detailing a $9.5 million settlement that CBS paid to actress Eliza Dushku, who says that she was written off of Bull after complaining about alleged sexual harassment from star Michael Weatherly. Weatherly, you know, spoke to the Times and said he made some tasteless comments on the set. He regrets the pain that it caused Eliza, but he insists he did not push for her to get fired. Um, obviously, the chief executive of CBS at the time was Les Moonves, who was later fired after multiple women brought claims of sexual misconduct against him. So, Darren, in thinking about this show, I have two questions. Like, there's no way in hell CBS will renew it for a fourth season, right? And number two, why are they still airing it at all? Two (laughs) two episodes have aired since the article came out, and there are three more left this season. And I just, I don't understand, like, read the room, CBS, because it's just really weird to me that... They are keeping the show on the air. I understand that Michael Weatherly, you know, and Glenn gordon Karen, who uh, runs the show, both deny that she was fired for complaining about, you know, sexual harassment. But CBS doesn't just hand out $9.5 million settlements for nothing. Why not just why not just pay the cast and crew for the remaining episodes and let it die quietly. Like literally, also Darren, the most recent episode features a woman in the beginning who is being sexually harassed by her boss and then she gets murdered in the bathroom.
0: Yeah, Kristen, uh, we I, I, you know, we should admit, or at least I should admit, I, I had never seen a single episode of this show before. And so I, I kind of acknowledge that, like, even having this conversation, it's interesting because, you know, I, I feel like whatever demographic I am in, I'm in the demographic of, like, I, I read the New York Times and I read Eliza Dushku's op-ed in the Boston Globe, right. which was a first-person description of her perspective on all of this, which I found very convincing. Certainly more convincing than Michael Weatherly comparing himself to Cary Grant, but, uh, you, you know, that's a whole other story whole other story don't bring gary grant into this Um, but um you know yeah we kind of decided that we'd watch you know the previous episode of bull before talking about it and like the opening scene of the episode it's kind of like, I hate to say it, like the CBS procedural scene where yeah. it's like, you know, it is about, it, it, it has almost nothing to do with the actual episode, which makes it even crazier, but you kind of see a guy sneak into a lady's bathroom. Inside of the bathroom, he chloroforms a woman. We find out almost immediately that he kills the woman and rapes her, Yep. yep. Um, but, but what makes it even stranger is right before that's happening, there's a scene where it's strongly implied that a woman is being propositioned by her boss, and that also has Nothing to do with nothing. the rest of the episode. Like the episode itself is all about like the medical examiner, who then years and years later comes into question, and it's just such a salacious opening, and it's almost kind of embarrassing given everything we know about you know the people running CBS, the people running this show now, um, and so it, it, it just gives it a weird vibe. Yeah. it is funny, Kristen. I was thinking that you know we're talking about a show that is just in such a different money bracket than maybe any other show we've talked about. So far, That's I mean, true. you know, it, it's watched by more viewers than maybe any show we've talked about thus far on our show combined. Um, and as you said, it's apparently making enough money that they're throwing around nine point five million dollars settlements, which, as you said, <laughs> is a pretty strong like where there's smoke, there's fire indication. Um, but I guess it's just it, it, it's strange because at the core of all of this, uh, in reading Dushku's piece, um, th- there was apparently a very accurate read on the show in season one where someone involved kind of felt like okay we have a show that's just about a dude like mansplaining how great you know you know explaining everything in every episode this is a great like you know guy explains show along the lines of the mentalist or Sherlock you know what we need to do is balance that out with a female character who is exactly like him but in the opposite direction which actually could have been an interesting show you know what I mean like uh, I I went back and watched one of Dushku's episodes and she was very fun on the show and it seems like there would have been an interesting dynamic there Um, and just to see that dynamic not only destroyed, but destroyed in a way that just seems so awful. It, it gives the whole show a really unsettling vibe, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, I, I just. It, it,
1: it, and you know what? Look, I like Michael Weatherly. I used to love him on one of my favorite soap operas, Loving, and its spin off, The City, both on ABC. He's very <laughs> good as, you know, sort of playing the charming wise ass. He's adorable. He's handsome. And, you know, he was good in this role in that he's, you know, he's charming, he's witty, uh, and he, you know, when 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 you put glasses on him, he looks smart, so you can imagine him as a, uh, you know, uh, top trial consultant. I, too, found Dushku's uh, account quite believable, and his, his, I was just making some bad jokes and doing some ad-libbing, like Cary Grant, unfortunate, like Uh, real unfortunate, uh. but I just, you know, the... I just don't understand with CBS going through everything that it's going through, you know, they had to fire Les Moonves, you know, last year, and then for this to come out and... And for them, A, to allow Michael Weatherly to speak to the Times, you know, maybe he did it on his own, um, even though there was a non-disclosure agreement, apparently, with the settlement. And B, then to keep the show on when, like, they have eight zillion other shows they could put on. They can put on a rerun of Criminal Minds or some other show where women are killed. FBI. Literally anything. Anything. And... It just seems like such an F you to, uh, to Eliza Dushku and to like anybody who finds her account credible. And it's not like they don't have the money to just pay the, the cast and crew for the remainder of the season. Um, they saved, what, $120 million on that Les Moonves settlement? He's not supposed to get that money. So why don't you chip off a little bit of that pay the cast and crew so that, you know, they're not cut off for the remaining four episodes, and then just fill it in with reruns of FBI or Navy SEALs or, you know, (laughs) frickin' MacGyver, whatever. It's just very disturbing, and it worries me regarding, like, this culture shift that is supposed to be happening at CBS now behind the scenes, you know, like there's been a lot of talk of like, you know, we are really dedicated and committed to remedying this culture that has been quite toxic for some time. And it's like, well, you know, you you had a real opportunity here. On the other hand, like maybe they just feel like Michael Weatherly is our star. He said he would, he didn't do it, you know, and we have to stand behind him. It's like, but are you really standing behind him with a $9.5 million settlement? I,
0: I don't know. You know, it, it's CBS has been its own ecosystem for such a long time. I kind of suspect, Kristen, and I think this is kind of borne out by their general reaction to this stuff, that just they were the top rated network for so long and long enough that it kind of seemed as if they might very well be the last classic TV network. Yes. N- n- not classic in terms of good, but in terms of like, you know, w- w- they were not out there trumping live plus seven metrics nope. and streaming. Streaming metrics and international sales they were a network that kept on getting Nielsen ratings and there were different reasons for that the joke reason was always that they were perhaps uh, aiming themselves at an audience that was old enough to not know what Netflix was yet but, <laughs> but, but, but you know I, I mean in all seriousness like I think that gave them the feeling of like we're just like a totally separate nation from all of this and we kind of do things our way and I guess that you know um, there was another piece that was written last year Kristen that was really on my mind watching bull and thinking about all of this. Uh, You read the great Linda Bloodworth Thomason op-ed in The Hollywood Reporter. Um, (laughs) You know, this is uh, the the creator of of Designing Women just had this really fascinating and hilarious and really brutal piece about her time working under Les Moonves and ultimately not for a variety of reasons. Um, And she had this line I have not been able to get out of my head and I'm just going to read it in its entirety here because it's so brilliant. Um, This is her talking about the Moonves era, basically. Uh, Quote, he presided over a a plethora of macho crime shows featuring a virtual genocide of dead naked hotties in morgue drawers with sadistic female autopsy reports ratcheted up each week. Is that a missing breast implant, Lieutenant? Yes, sir. We also found playing cards in her uterus. And I just, again, watching the first part of that whole uh-huh. episode, which literally begins with a naked hottie in a morgue drawer. Like it's just, it, it's just a weird. It feels like a culture. It feels like a culture that needs to change and it just seems as if them getting behind Bull or at least still airing it is an example of them just digging in their trenches deeper and yeah. I, I just that makes me very antsy in general and, and I, I I legitimately don't think it's good for CBS in the long run. This is a network that has good shows on it and I just I, I, I worry about what this kind of means if they're still kind of getting behind this.
1: I know and I mean the good news is that Criminal Minds uh, which is the number one violence against women show like it loves to torture a lady. It loves to put her in a dog cage. Oh, it loves it. Uh, It's ending soon, and uh, hopefully uh, hopefully Bull will go go, uh, off into the sunset and all of that. I don't know. I mean, the CBS is a network built on procedurals. I've, I've always been sort of allergic to procedurals, but a lot of people like them. But there are plenty of procedurals that can just be, you know, they can, it can be on the action level like Magnum PI or MacGyver, or it can be FBI, you know, which is like basically law and order terrorism. Like they don't all <laughs> have to be about women being raped and murdered. And again, I know CBS is not the only network that does this, uh, you know, NBC has law, law and Order SVU and and it's not like bull it's not like every case was about rape and murder but I just was nobody at the wheel when they when they saw the first 5 minutes of the most recent episode and they were like maybe we shouldn't have a boss Drive a young woman out of fear uh, for being harassed into into the bathroom and into the arms of a murderer.
0: Oh God, yeah, it's just it's a it's it's a strange strange plotline to be going after uh, this year for sure. And I, I'm sure in some of they were just like, this is great. It's 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 ripped from the headlines. It's like no, it's
1: it's ripped from, it's ripped from your press releases. <laughs> it's ripped from your boardroom. Like it's unfortunate. Anyway, you know, I believe there are about uh, three or four more episodes of Bull left. We probably won't find out for a while whether or not they're renewing it. Um, You know, the upfronts where they announce their new fall schedule won't be uh, until May. And it's possible that they may decide that, you know, to sort of quietly say, you know, the Bulls series finale will air in March or whatever. But I just hope that you know, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with Michael Weatherly. Like, it, who's going to want to hire him after this? I don't know. Probably a lot of people because that's how the world works. But yeah. uh, I think it's time for CBS to just take this one behind the shed and, and uh, tell it to look at the flowers, as you would say. <laughs> If oldly. Uh, Bull does
0: return tonight. Uh, You know, everybody, if you want to watch it, let us know what you think about it. That's fine. Uh, I probably will not pay attention if you say you like it, but I will. No, I will. Honestly, I'll I'll listen. Um, But next up, something that I'm really excited about, Kristen, uh, I recorded an interview with Lance Reddick of Comedy Central's Corporate, uh, and let's hear that. It's my incredible pleasure to welcome uh, today's special guest to Best of Shows. Uh, he's been in some of my absolute favorite TV series of this century, from The Wire to Fringe to his fantastic role as the nefarious but kind of lovable CEO Christian DeVille on Comedy Central's Corporate, uh, currently airing on Tuesdays at 10.30. Lance Reddick, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, Corporate's second season is airing right now. Uh, every episode a classic, I think, I just love watching this show and rewatching Watching it, and uh, your role in particular is just so fabulous. Um, the first episode uh, had—I I think it was a three-minute monologue by <laughs> Christian Deville, telling a very long and very wild joke that I have to admit I had never heard before. What's it like, kind of getting into this character? I mean, he's—he's he's very over the top in a sword-swinging way, but I just—I love the kind of meticulous oh. <laughs> aspect of him so much. Um, when you say
2: meticulous, it's funny because one of the things. Um I mean, I feel like it's it, it, the way that he speaks is written very meticulously. I have um, an off-and-on kind of fascination with psychopaths. <laughs> <And> <laughs> is, it, is it currently off or on I, right now? It happens to be off right now. But <laughs> at the time that I was cast, I happened to be reading a book <laughs> about psychopaths that my son had recommended. And, and about 10 years ago, when I was uh, uh, shooting the second season of Fringe, uh, I found a book um, uh, written by a, a Canadian um, psychologist about kind of... Psychopaths, <laughs> and so um, you know one of one of the the, the current thinking, my understand, my limited understanding of the current thinking about psychopaths is that is that it, it's not necessarily that you are or aren't, but it's more that there's kind of a psychopath scale, uh-huh. and certain types of hum- human beings tend to be uh, high on the psychopath scale, and corporate CEOs tend to be. Up there,
0: they're, they're up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd love to know, I mean, like, uh, as far as the, this research goes, is there anything you knew you wanted to do with Christian. I mean, again, we we meet him, and he's such he's such already a larger than life figure. And yet, I do find that without necessarily learning more about his history, he is very likable in, in a way. And there's something even this season, as we've kind of seen more of his his loneliness. I don't know. There's there, there is a humanity to him, even though he is an incredibly inhuman sort of you know business bad. <laughs> now to be perfectly frank when I first was cast well when I first got the offer and I read the pilot
2: I didn't really get it so it was one of those and and having never really spent a lot of time in corporate America I didn't really uh, I didn't really have a reference frame of reference so but it was my agent who said um, you know I I said I usually don't ask this but what do you think she said I think you should do it she said I feel like they really get the um, the culture of fear in corporate America, I was like, "Wow," <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. And at the time, quite frankly, uh, because I didn't quite get it, you know, when, on the page, it wasn't my kind of humor. So, um, and at the, at the t- also, it was kind of like, oh, "Gosh, I just don't want to play another, you know, asshole boss in a suit," <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, she said, "This is going to be a different asshole boss," I promise you. <laughs> and uh, and it was, and it wasn't really until we shot it wasn't even when we shot the pilot, because even when we shot the pilot, it's funny, talking about being m- meticulous, I, um, you know, I, um, one of the things that I thought I wanted to bring to the character was his fastidiousness. And uh, the first scene that I shot was my, the when he's revealed at the beginning of the first episode of the first season, um, when he gets out of bed and uh, there's a montage where he's um, kind of making a, um, a shake out of everything from <laughs> from vegetables to pills. He just put, throws it all in there, <laughs> and you know, I, I almost had an argument. I almost started an argument with Pat, our director uh, uh, and c- one of the co-creators. Um, about how the stuff was laid out on the counter, I said, well, he wouldn't do this. And he said, look, it, it, it'll be funny, just trust me. And I was like, oh, Lord, this kid doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, it's just a pilot, I will have to. And lo and behold, I saw the pilot and my jaw dropped. I was like, wow, that's really funny. Uh-huh. And that's really um, uh, poignant. And, and the other thing was, <laughs> When we did our first TCA, I couldn't believe the number of of reporters who said to me, uh, that show is so real it's a little scary. (laughs)
0: I, I do find that yeah I, I kind of tell like anyone who's ever been in well really any kind of meeting room but certainly in a boardroom there's just moments with Christian that I think resonate for everyone you know you, you were talking about the culture of fear but even you know in in scenes this season when he begins his sort of commanding presence and he's kind of you know telling his people one thing or another I just feel like a lot of people I know can definitely relate to that which it's interesting to hear that that's not an experience you've necessarily had before that sort of incredible fear of the super intense body. Figure. <laughs> oh No, no, no! I've had that, but I mean, I feel like
2: uh, c- corporate culture is almost an animal in and of itself. That if you haven't lived in that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I've had uh, bosses I've been afraid of, you know, like flipping burgers or you know. Uh, yeah. But um, you know, e- even in the even in the entertainment industry, uh, being an actor, it, it, you don't see what it's like to be um, uh, a designer or producer, or an executive. Do you know what I mean? Where Mm -hmm. everybody's worrying about their jobs.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you had uh, a couple of fantastic scenes in the season premiere, uh, one of which you were working with the great Robert Morse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was fantastic. I, I have to good. ask a lot. So I- in that sequence, uh, your character, Christian, is kind of buying a, a news company, a, a, oh, a, a yeah. 24-hour <laughs> news network from BN. him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the BNN. Um, what was it like filming that scene? Uh, d- just, you know, you two guys t- uh, t- to get together on screen are so great. And of course, what Christian does in that scene is so hilarious. Uh, It's
2: funny because the scene was actually uh, longer, but they had, it just was too, it would have made the episode too long. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, first of all, anytime you work with an icon, when you first meet him, there's kind of this, uh, you want to walk on eggshells a little bit. Uh (laughs) Um, But then, um, the other thing was that... uh, how do I put this, Roberts? Uh, because of the generation that he's from as an actor, uh, particularly being uh, uh, having done so much theater and, and musical theater, uh, there's there's a um, he loves doing gags. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I mean, th- there's 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 a kind of. Um, how do I put this? I don't want to say gaggy. <laughs> but, gags like like for the show or gags like like in between. Well, no, sets no, as when an you actor, guys are... as a comedy, there's a there, you know, it's interesting. Um my um my wife and I um <laughs> just bought the box set of Laverne and Shirley. And, you know, looking at it, it's interesting because we I also just finished reading Penny Marshall's um uh well actually listened to her, her autobiography. Oh, fantastic. And fantastic um you know uh think about the fact that you know when when she was when she first was married to Rob Reiner, they were both on hit shows. And her show actually ended up being first and pushing all the family out of the <laughs> out of the ratings. But if you look at All in the Family, uh, it was such a groundbreaking show because they tried to ground, for, in, in addition to just all the politics that it tried to deal with, uh, it tried to ground it in so much reality. And you know, and looking at Lord Vernon Shirley, even though um, I think it was uh, the first season was in 1974, um, it it felt like a uh, late 60s sitcom. Do you know what I mean? And so, uh, uh, do you mean just like in terms of the the performance style, it, it, well, in, terms in terms of, terms the, look of the performance or? style, and even in terms of the writing? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was you you set up a situation to to to. Uh, to get to get gags in,
0: yeah. Minute one, here's the plot yeah, of yeah, the episode, yeah. and the, you know we'll kind of yeah. do variations of that same gag throughout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was interesting to me
2: with Robert because he's such a great actor to see him work, loving to like mug and to do, <laughs> and, and you know when I, when I threatened him with a sword, and you you, know, you can't see it on the <laughs> podcast, but he did
0: this, which didn't get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, was, he was sort of reacting with, 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 with great horror, is well, yeah, how I yeah, would yes. describe it? As, as, as,
2: as though he wanted to make sure that the people in Row 32 could see it.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. What's it like uh, playing that kind of character? What are some of the challenges specific to that versus, uh, you know, someone like Daniels on the wire, who was very charismatic in his own way, but also clearly, I mean, he carried the weight of ten worlds on his shoulder. And there was something more relatable about that. As an actor, which, you know, is, is more of a challenge to kind of play that larger than life alpha wolf type figure? Wow, they were those
2: are very well, it's interesting because they're both um guys in charge, but it was there were very different characters
0: in that. As you said, different asshole a different asshole bosses. yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Daniels is actually, he actually starts out as, as kind of an asshole, but it's more because he's bought into it's just the opposite question. He's bought into at the beginning of this, of the of the wire, um the The ambition track, so it's about it's about it's about rank, it's about do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and over the course of the first season, he, he he comes to realize that it's really for me. It's really about the work, and this is this is a, a set of values that I've kind of taken on that aren't that aren't authentic to me. Mm-hmm. Um, he's 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 getting more in touch with his yeah. human side, I, I guess, in a way. Yeah. 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 But um, with. Christian, he's really about power and money. It's it's you know, there's this is great um, this is great line at the end of um, The Devil Wears Product where Mel Street says, Oh, sweetie, everybody wants to live the way we do. <laughs> And it's just, you know, that's, I feel like that's <laughs> Christian's, you know what I mean? Of course. I mean, all these people, all, because <laughs> Christian's so, obviously he's politically so conservative. He's like, oh, all these liberals, all these, <laughs> it's just, they, they're so, I'm not in touch with what they really want. Everybody wants to live the way I do. Everybody wants to be me. It's just that only like 10 people in the world can be, and I'm one of them.
0: Um let's, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier on, you've just had so many fantastic roles in so many great shows over the years. Uh, but I, I wanted to bring up that, um, kind of looking at your history, um, it seemed like one of your first really kind of fantastic roles on television was on the TV series, Oz. Um, yeah, that which was is,
2: really my big break.
0: That was your big break, and you know, I feel like that's a show that, it was so transformative at the time, and to me really conjures up so many great things that have happened in, in, in television since then. Uh, I worry sometimes it's gotten a little low, Lost in the shuffle. So do I. <laughs> um, well, so I, I'd love to know what was it like, kind of being on that show at that time. It was such an outlier. What what Oz was able to do versus what what, what was happening in, in the rest of television at that time.
2: Well, I mean, nothing else like that was happening on television at the time. I mean, the thing for me that was so cool was, um, you know, what at, being an actor from the generation that I came from, you know. Um, you know, that was kind of the the mine mine was kind of the last generation that thought that um, if you if you considered yourself a real actor, TV was a means to an end. Mm-hmm. It was really about being um, uh, doing film and doing theater, um, and TV was kind of looked down on. And and so for me, uh, being cast in a show where everybody's able to do all this kind of R-rated nuanced. Film work, I mean, in terms of the kinds of performances on TV on TV was great. And the other thing is, you know, um, being in New York, you know, it's like it's a theater mecca. You know, it's all these great theater actors.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Oz itself. I wonder, just as a performer, was there an aspect of kind of the theatricality to it? That's one thing that I remember. Just even <laughs> even, even how characters sort of came across on screen. It just seemed to me like it, it it was able to feed so many dimensions. And even your character in the time that he was on the show went through a lot. I, I oh, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh I Because mean, am, am I right? Initially, he was undercover, and then he kind yeah, of yeah, lost no, track a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was you
2: know it's interesting because when I um, um, when I died on the show I, 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 I didn't get a heads up, I read it in the script Oh no,
0: <laughs> that was your first That was your first alert? And that's not
2: the only time that happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's a story for another time, maybe But, um, and I, you know, I went to Tom And I said, Tom, you know, are you I just have to know, have you been unhappy with my work? He said, no, 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 no you've been great It's just that you, the, the trajectory of your character Is such that it looks like he's going to Like, live happily ever after And on Oz, that just can't happen <laughs>
0: It's 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 not that kind of yeah, show. Look
2: like he's reconciling with his wife and kids. He's just gonna do his time. He, you know, it's just yeah. yeah. And when, it, when it, it seems like things are just going going well for character on this show,
0: it just can't happen. <laughs> I was like, wow, got it. But, but so you said uh, th- th- that's happened a few times though. You've you've been reading the script and suddenly it's just like, wait a second, what? Oh, well, I... not a few times, but I mean, I, I've uh, it happened to me on Lost. I found out when I read it in the script. <laughs> I was
2: really pissed.
0: I Is that mean, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because uh, when we met uh, Matthew Abaddon, he he seemed like someone who was in for a long for for a long road. And well, I, I, here's what I, here's what I think happened.
2: I think he was one of
0: the characters that they were going to
2: uh, they were planning on easing into being a series regular, and I, and I was cast uh, in August. So I was literally cast in my l- last month of shooting the last season of The Wire. Uh, so my, my first episode on Lost was shot in September of 2007. But then I got cast in Fringe in January of 2008. So um, at first it was like, well, I'm still going to be able to do Lost. And uh, I was assured, oh, yeah, you'll, you'll be able to continue to recur on Lost. I swear to God. The first episode, we, 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 we shot the pilot for uh, Fringe in February. We got picked up. We were shooting, I think it was episode nine of Fringe. They asked me to do an episode of Lost. And I had a lot of stuff in it. You know, and I'm reading and I'm reading man, I got great stuff, I got
0: great stuff. Boom, shot in the head. <laughs> What? Oh, oh, oh no. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the show that uh people kind of most will come up and like, you know, yell at you about? I mean, like uh, is, or is is there one kind of role wow. in in particular that sort of people are most sort of like, you know, adamant about telling you how fantastic it was? Um she's I don't know. I
2: mean, it used to be The Wire. Um then the wire, you know, once once Fringe really got underway, it was kind of half and half. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, l- lately, it's interesting too because the the demographics always different. Like uh, so often, uh, so often, I found that f- fans from Fringe have not watched The Wire, and vice versa. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, I, I've, um, I, more than one occasion, I've had. Um, Interesting to interesting enough, they were both black. Uh I was on the plane. It was actually it was on it was just on the plane to go to Hawaii uh and uh to to, to shoot Godzilla versus King Kong. And um while we were waiting to get on to board the plane, my wife and I were sitting there and these two kids, they, they, it's clear they're brother and sister, they you know they, he was maybe sixteen and, and teenagers, 14th, yeah, yeah, teenagers, um, and said what great how much they loved Bosch. Wow! And I'm like, ninety percent of people that come to me and say they love Bosch are like over fifty years old, <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and and also ninety five percent of them are white, <laughs> uh, and so, we get on the plane. And a Black guys walking by and he and I'm you know, I'm sitting on the aisle and he leans over to me He says Love your work man. I know who you are. These are the people don't know, but I know who you are
0: <laughs> That's fantastic.
2: And I knew it was cuz he knew me from the wire and he didn't know me from anything else
0: uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. He was not a Bosch fan, but I I, I, I love yeah. this this new generation of teen Bosch fans is 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 uh, you know That's well, a fantastic that new was discovery. the beginning of me
2: thinking wow this thing is really big and I know Bosch is really um, uh, is, Well, this the, the novels are kind of big all over the world, particularly uh, in the States and in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know it's really big in the UK, but so is, so is um, The Wire.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Lance, uh, at, at the show, we like to kind of always ask people about some of their TV likes, the TV recommendations. Uh, what was the first show you remember loving uh, and, and why? Oh, wow.
2: The first show I remember loving. This is tough because I grew up addicted to television. Um, so it's interesting because some of the shows that I grew up loving were shows that I... I had to catch in reruns Mm -hmm. when I was a little kid. That counts. But um, I mean, I loved I Spy. Mm-hmm. I love the Avengers. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the Avengers, uh, to, to clarify, the, the British yeah, spy Avengers. The, bit, the right. British
2: spy spoof. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the 60s.
0: With John, was it John Steed? John and... Steed and
2: Emma Peel. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, the great Diana Rigg. Oh yeah. man, I had the biggest crush on her. Is that right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I feel like, the, But in, for some reason, the show that I, I feel like influenced me the most, I don't know if it was influenced, but I just loved was Star Trek. The original Star Trek? The original. There was something about Captain Kirk. In junior high or high school, I I became fascinated with Shakespeare because I heard William Shatner was a Shakespearean actor.
0: Oh, absolutely!
2: Yeah, I remember uh, one weekend finding an old this old uh, fraying um, uh, a compilation of Shakespeare plays that my dad had from college, uh-huh. and. I found speech, speech of Brutus, and I, I I learned it, and I I just one afternoon I started memorizing it, pretending like doing it like I was Captain Kirk. Oh wow! In (laughs) that kind of like, like,
0: like, like Kirk style. Well, I didn't,
2: you know, at the time I didn't understand that there was a Kirk Kirk style. Now, (laughs) especially, especially once you know after the first season, Um, but. in a weird way, that kind of sparked a love of Shakespeare
0: that's never left. So that and, and that kind of led you to Shakespeare and kind of led you to acting, then, it sounds like. Is well, acting, the... well,
2: that's a different story. Because even the way that I got into acting was so kind of ass-backward. I mean, I didn't start acting until I was 27 years old. Really? Yeah. How, well, this is true. I acted in college for fun. Uh-huh. But, I mean, it was nothing that I ever even... Th- Considered as a career. I started acting. I'd, I'd gone to music school and I left the music school. I went to conservatory and I realized I didn't really, I, I, I was a composition major and I realized that I was in denial and I didn't really want to be a classical composer. I wanted to be a rock star since I was seven. So I wanted, I tried to pursue that, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I started acting um, at, a, at a time of desperation, um, thinking it would help my music career. <laughs> and it just kind <laughs> of I mean it's crazy it's its yeah
0: other question that we love to ask all of our guests here uh, what's a TV show that you're loving now uh, could be one you're on but uh, you, know, well, you know what, what are you kind of watching uh, you know just I mean, in your, in your there's, spare time there's a,
2: there's a bunch of them but the, my latest obsession is Lodge 49
0: uh, the, the AMC yeah, show yeah. I love that show yeah. this is the show where uh, uh, Wyatt Russell stars as yeah. kind of a beach bum who gets yep. involved in Secret Society yep. so you've, you've watched it
2: I watched the whole first season oh but fantastic it's funny too because I hadn't how I heard about it, uh, Paul Giamatti and I are friends from drama school. So this summer when we were uh, shooting, he he lives in New York. So we were shooting John with two, uh, three, um, my wife and I had lunch with him a couple times. And so um, the last time we saw him, we were talking to him about, um, you know, you know, next time you're in, when you're in LA, you know, you got to come come by the house. And he said. Um, well, I'm going to be in LA at such and such a time. I said, well, we won't be back. He, I said, uh, you just going for pleasure? You working on something? He said, well, there's this show that I'm producing and uh, I'm doing publicity for it. And I said, he said, I said, what is? This? He said, Lodge 49. And I kind of it kind of went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> Then when we when corporate started getting on all these uh, best of lists of t- 2018, I noticed Lodge 49 was on the same list. I'm like, isn't that Paul's show? I was like, Steph, maybe we should watch it, and especially you know next time we see him, I can say yeah, I saw a show. And we started watching it, and literally from the first moment when Brent Jennings coming out of the house to shoot at the crows, I was like, is this gonna be one of those shows? And then, it just, <laughs> and then as it's going on, I'm like. I don't know what this is, but it's brilliant. And and you know Brent Jennings's performance
0: on the show, oh, he's incredible. Man. I mean, his role on that show, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, by the end of the season, he is sort of the hero figure of the show. And yeah. just oh, like the weight that he's carrying, yeah. and he has that great speech towards the end about how like you know I'll, I'll be here at this golf course every week, and it, it's just heartbreaking. I, I love I love that you've kind of found that show. It's a hard show to describe. Uh, I've found as i am kind of trying to tell people about it, um, but it really is just unlike anything else on on. I, that show. Television. Even
2: the casting. I mean, I, I you know I said to Paul because uh, I'm just going to be honest. Sometimes when I watch American television, I just feel like it's just so look and type oriented, mm-hmm. like that I don't see when I watch b- British television. So when I look, when I just looking at looking at the cast, forget about how how great all the performances are, but just looking at the cast, I'm like. Oh, is this person Australian? Is this person British? Is this person, also? and I was like, No, it's American. I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm looking up on IMDb. I'm telling my wife, Steph, he's American. Steph, He's American. They're all American. Oh my God! Well, the British guy, but he's playing British, so that's okay. And, <laughs> and I said, to, you know, I texted Paul. I said, how did you get this made? And how did you get like this cast? He said I had to fight
0: for a lot of those people. uh Yeah. Well, and the fight was so well done. It's funny what you were saying about kind of the typecasting, even um, there's the character on Lodge 49 who's like the big bald dude with oh, yeah. a beard. And, and like, you know, at, at the corner of your eye, you're like, okay, he's a heavy, like, I, I I, I get what character he'd be cast as usually. And that character has such a inner life. Oh, and, you he's, know. he's
2: so, he's such a... He could kick your ass if he had to. I mean, there's no, there's no bones about that, but he's, he's just such a, uh, he's such heart. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he, uh, and I don't mean heart like tough, but I mean, he's, he's, uh, he loves his wife so much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. all about how much he loves his wife.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Lance, uh, what else are you working on right now? or Are there the projects that are coming up? You have a lot of movies. Uh, well, a are coming, coming out, in the out this year.
2: um, um Little Woods, a uh, film that I did with Tessa Thompson, uh, directed by Nia DaCosta, Costa, uh, uh, and it's uh, and also Lily James. Uh, that's coming out in April. Um, it's a film that I did called Canal Street that actually uh, uh, opens Saturday, uh, and then um, John Wick Three opens in May, and Angelus Fallen opens in August, mm-hmm. and then uh, I, the second season of uh, second jeez, the fifth <laughs> season of Bosch drops. Uh, we don't have a we don't have a, an air day yet, but uh, it'll it'll probably be sometime in April. So.
0: Sometime this year, and yeah. Then, it'll be uh, in the spring. And then you mentioned uh, the tiny indie film Godzilla vs Kong. That's coming oh, out yeah, next well, year. <laughs> right? That's coming
2: out in twenty twenty. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, did I see that IMDb? Were you in the Godzilla movie back in the late nineties? <laughs>
2: I'm sorry to bring this up. If it's no, a no, sore, if it's a sore no, no, spot, no. it's but... not a sore spot. It's just funny. That was one of the first film uh, roles I ever got. The scene was cut from the movie. No. <laughs> um, but you know, I still have the credit, and I, I I kept getting residuals for years. Uh, that,
0: that, that, that's fantastic. That's yeah. fantastic. And now all these years later, you're you're back in the sort of Godzilla yeah. fold. Yeah. So, uh, well, Lance, I was excited to talk to you because of your great work. But now knowing that you're a fellow Lodge Forty Nine fan, okay. uh, I'm even more excited. Uh, uh, listeners, Corporate airs Tuesdays at ten thirty p.m. on Comedy Central. Uh, watch it; it's a fantastic show. Uh, well, Lance Reddick, thank you again so much for being with us here on Best of Shows. I uh, love your work, and hope everyone uh, checks out uh, all the products uh, that you have. Uh, coming up this year thanks and everybody watch corporate it's great
1: (laughs) (laughs) so that's going to do it for best of shows this week uh we look forward to your feedback please listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcast give us a rating give us a review tweet at us at darren franich or at Kristen g baldwin tell us what you think what you like what what you don't like you can find ew's best of shows on apple podcasts stitcher spotify all your favorite podcast places So on behalf of Darren and myself, have a great week, and I should have a catchphrase, but I don't, so bye!